This morning's reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Father, we commit this Advent season to you, and we reflect on the fact that you came into history, you came into time and space as a baby born to a young girl named Mary. So, Father, we pray this Christmas season that another Advent would happen, another coming would happen, and that is that you would come into our hearts in a special way. We pray for that even now as we think and reflect on your word, Father, that you would speak to us because we desperately need to hear your voice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why do we sing in church? Have you ever wondered why we get together every week and and sing songs together in this thing called worship? Because really, it's not very common in our culture anymore. We listen a lot to music. We appreciate a lot to music. We may sing really loud in the shower or in the car when nobody else is looking. But church is really the only place in our culture nowadays where People gather together in large groups to sing. And for many, from an outside perspective, for people that don't go to church or anything like that, it kind of seems really weird that people get together and sing songs with one another. So the question is, why do we do it? Why do we get together here every Sunday to sing songs? Well, a guy named Mike Cosper wrote a book called Rhythms of Grace that tried to answer that very question. He tried to answer why it's important for God's people to gather every Sunday to sing together. And one of the things that he argues is, is that it's really important for all of us that we have to sing the truth of God into our hearts. He says that singing is a marriage of truth, it's a marriage of beauty, it's a marriage of action, all together. And that songs paint the text or paint the scriptures emotionally into our hearts. They provide the language for experiences that often in life leave us speechless. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that the Bible contains a lot of songs all throughout, throughout its pages. The, the book of Psalms is in and of itself a song book that God's people would use to worship God. And if you read the stories of the many characters that are talked about in scriptures, you'll see that they are people that would regularly break into spontaneous song. Now, 
I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but I've never been a big fan of musicals. Okay? I'll watch them, I'll enjoy them from time to time, but I've never been a big fan of musicals. Maybe I'm just a really kind of utilitarian purpose per person, but whenever I watch a musical and they start singing, I just think to myself, all right, let's get through this song and get on with the plot. And let's cut out all this musical fluff. So often when I read through the scriptures and I come to songs, I simply just skip over them as filler that other people that are musical really enjoy. But I think when I do that, and I think when we do that, we really miss out on so much of the beauty. We miss out on what is going on in the hearts of the peoples that sang these songs. Because the biblical writers or the biblical characters wrote songs and poetry in order to give expression to what their hearts were feeling. They did it to to give expression to these feelings in a way that just simple words or simple plot or simple doctrine couldn't really express. So what I'd like to do this Advent season is to look at the songs of Christmas. We're not going to look at Christmas carols that we sing, though that would be an interesting thing to look at. We're not going to look at the songs that are played on the, the, the Christmas radio station Instead, we're going to look at the actual songs, the actual poetry that the book of Luke tells us that centers around the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Zechariah's song that is found in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at John the Baptist's song that we sing in Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at Simeon's song in Luke chapter 2. On Christmas Eve, we're going to focus on maybe the, the most profound song, and that is the angel's song on the night in which Jesus was born that we read about in Luke chapter 2. But this morning, what I'd like to do is look very briefly at Mary's song that we see in Luke chapter 1, a song that has also been called the Magnificat, or that which is the Latin term for the first few sentences that Mary sings in her song. And in this song, in the Magnificat, Mary gives expression. She gives expression to her feelings in a way that only she knows how to do. She breaks into song. And in her song, she expresses her wonder and amazement about the things that God is doing in her immediate life, in her personal story, but she also breaks into song in awe and wonder at what God is doing in the ultimate or in the story of human history. So this morning I'd like to look at those two aspects of Mary's song and what we see in the first few chapters or the first few verses of Mary's song is that she gives expression to her wonder about the immediate. She gives expression to the wonder about how God is entering the story of her life. In Luke chapter 1, we're, we're introduced to Mary. And we have a lot of popular conceptions about what Mary looked like or, or, or what Mary did. Artists have give, given expressions to Mary uh, all throughout human history. But what the reality is, is that Mary was probably a young girl who was probably 12 or 13 years old. 
She lived in a, in a small town uh, called uh, Nazareth, which was in the region of Galilee, and this was really a, a nothing town. Nobody thought very highly of it. It was actually looked down upon by the rest of the region. And the scriptures tell us that Mary was betrothed or engaged to another young man whose name was Joseph. But before they had opportunity to to consummate their marriage, before they had opportunity to go through the, the ritual of marriage, Mary was greeted by an angel, an angel named Gabriel. And immediately, as soon as the angel visits her, she's afraid. She's read the scriptures before, and she knows that often when angels show up, it's not always a good thing. So immediately, she's very scared. But instead of being scared, the angel calms her down and announces that even though she's a virgin, she will conceive and bear a son, and that son will be the savior of the world. He will be God who took on skin. He will be God in the flesh. And when you reflect on Mary, you have to think that she must have had lots of mixed emotions when she heard this news from Gabriel. Turning up pregnant before marriage carries some stigma in our culture, but in Mary's culture, it brought extreme stigma. To suddenly come up pregnant before marriage would have jeopardized her marriage probably with Joseph. It would have opened her up to all sorts of gossip and scandal probably for the rest of her life. She would have been talked about. When she left the room, people would have whispered about her. She would have been labeled in all sorts of different ways. And most likely, she would have been rejected from her friends and rejected from her family as a sinner. She could even be subjected to punishment. She could be subjected to stoning for what she had done. And few, if any, would have believed her story that she was conceived by God himself. When Mary heard these words, everything about her life was about to change. And you would expect her to break into some sort of song of lament or some sort of song of sadness because of this, uh, this cross, in some sense, that she would have to bear now for the rest of her life. But instead, she breaks into song of wonders and songs of praise at her immediate situation. It says in verse 26, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Mary breaks, she bursts into awe and wonder at how God has chosen her for this task. She couldn't believe that God would choose someone who was so small, someone who was so insignificant, someone who was so humble as she was to be a part of something so significant and something so powerful. Though Mary was considered blessed, she was far from perfect. In in verse 47, she says, "...her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior." She says that because she recognized personally 
that she needed a savior. She needed someone, she needed God to come and offer rescue from her soul that had been made sick through sin. And Jesus, her very own child, would be the instrument of that rescue that she was waiting for. But her amazement doesn't just relate to her story or her situation. It doesn't just relate to the immediate But her song also gives expression to the fact that God is doing something much bigger than just her. You see, despite being 12 or or 13 years old, Mary had a profound sense of God and of His dealing with humanity. She would have been raised as a good young Jewish woman, and any good young Jewish woman was raised to know that she was awaiting one special thing from God, and that was the Messiah. Her song that she really sings here is full of all sorts of ancient scriptures that she would have learned all throughout her childhood. She would be raised with stories about Abraham and stories about Moses and David, all giants of the faith, but all people who recognized that at one point a Messiah would come. And when that Messiah came, he would fulfill all the promises of God in a climactic and substantial and powerful way. So Mary recognized in this moment that this was not just important for her and for her life, but this was important for the entire world. But even she was surprised that God would come in such a unique and different way than what was expected. God wasn't coming in power and might as many people expected. He wasn't born in a famous location or born to really well-known people. Instead, the Messiah was to be born amongst the poor and the lowly. His ministry would be amongst the poor and the lowly. And his ministry would confound the strong. It would confound the people who believed they had it all together. His message would fall on deaf ears to those who were impressed with their own goodness and their own righteousness, those who were impressed with their own resume. It would confound those who were deceived and blinded to their own personal need for Him. Instead, his message would have power for a different type of person. It would have power for those who recognize that they stand before God as broken. People who know that they are poor in spirit. People who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. People who recognize that more than any other need they have in life, their greatest need is to be rescued from, their, from themselves. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, God is in the Manger, said this. He said, For the great and powerful of this world, there are only two places where their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls, for which they shy away from. These are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No powerful person dares to approach the manger, and this even includes King Herod. For this is where thrones shake. 
The mighty fall, the prominent perish because God is with the lowly. Here the rich come to nothing because God is with the poor and the hungry. But the rich and the satisfied he sends away empty. Before Mary the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God in lowliness, the powerful come to naught. They have no right and they have no hope. You see, Mary, when she reflected on her story, when she reflected on the fact that God was breaking into history, she recognized that her only hope in life was to recognize that she had no hope in and of herself. She and you and I need God to come to our rescue. We need God to come to provide us with hope. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us this Advent season is that we, like Mary, would be in a perpetual state of wonder. Wonder at the fact that God shows up in the immediate, that he shows up in the story and the mess of our lives, but also that God shows up in the ultimate as well. He comes to show up in human history. You see, Jesus didn't come just to change you and I individually. And he didn't just come to fix the world and all its problems. He actually came in the world to fix both. What's been interesting this week is is that really the eyes of the world uh, have been on another small town, and that is the town of Ferguson, Missouri. This week, uh, a jury chose not to indict a white officer in the shooting death of a black teenager. And because of that, immediately all sorts of rioting and looting uh, ensued all over the country. Protests sprung up everywhere. Even here in Baltimore, college students uh, marched in protest some four miles from the northern part of the city all the way down to City Hall. And of course, as, as we all know, the, the blogosphere and the internet has been acting in overdrive this week with people wanting to, to share their opinions of furthering this, the discussion, of wanting to, to blog about the things that have happened. Every pastor has felt the need to, to write a blog about this as well. But what's amazed me so much about the story is not so much the particulars, But it's reminded me about how two different cultures can view the same situation in such different ways. And what is highlighted and reminded me is just how profound some of the cultural divides in our culture are. Sure, we experience them in small ways every day, but we've been reminded this week of just how profound those divides can really be. Really what it has done for everyone is it has highlighted that you and I live in a broken world that needs reconciliation. We live in a broken world that needs fixing. Mary's culture was really different than our culture is nowadays, but she knew that her world needed to be fixed. And this is why she rejoiced. She rejoiced because God had remembered his promises and he was getting ready to act upon it. 
But Mary didn't just know that the world needed to be fixed. She knew that she needed to be fixed too. She was, most, she was very poor materially, but she knew that her greatest need was that she was poor spiritually. And she rejoiced because she recognized that God had come to fix it. That through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, he would make a way for the divide between God and us to be bridged and to be repaired. My hope for all of us is that we would wonder this season at God working in the ultimate of this world, but also in the immediate of each and every one of our lives. Because after all, God is not a spectator God who's up in heaven wishing things would go better. Instead, he is an active God who has come. He enters into the story of this world and he enters into the story of our lives. And my hope for all of us is that as we reflect on that this season, the thoughts of our heart would make our hearts sing.